Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Warfighter Podcast with myself, Colin Hillier, and Tom Kunstall. Hello, Tom. Hello, mate. How's it going? Oh, very good. I'm just recovering from um, crawling under the Land Rover for a few hours. Oh, I saw that post on LinkedIn. Look, you know you know, LinkedIn's a professional network, Colin. You know? uh, but you get more traction with authenticism, and I was a, a wet, sloppy mess at the end of that. <laughs> trying to put axles on a, on a 40 year old Land Rover but hey we're there but what have you been up to I just uh watching the, you know the expansion and growth of episode one that went out and and, <laughs> and taking feedback and and testing and adjusting but it so far seems to be well received so pretty happy with us well, and what what our listeners don't see is the very short flash to bang on some of these that we were asked to sort of put this out put these out on a schedule yes it's great that season two is flowing we have a really good schedule you know Agile methodology, we're sort of doing as we're planning. Some of the stats and figures are interesting in terms of the last 28 days. Bearing in mind, the, the episode one only went out two weeks ago, but over 40 countries have downloaded an episode. Uh, you know, there are people in those countries that are downloading episodes of the Warfighter podcast, which is it's pretty cool. So, Colin, DSEI, how was it? And Great. obviously, glad to hear it. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, to looking in from a social media, it was the best thing since sliced bread. The sun was shining proverbially and everyone, it was busy and everyone had the best few days ever in London. Now, did that, did the hype meet the reality, Colin? I think so. By the way, we're not paid by Clarion to say <laughs> this more. We've- which we were. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to know, isn't it? You know, it's been a funny few last sort of four years and it's certainly traditionally we've never considered DSEI as a training show. But what was interesting to me, there was a lot more software, a lot more simulation, not just for training, but for other aspects. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of drones. It's definitely moving on. I mean, still those armored vehicles for you, armored vehicle nuts, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's safe. But there's a lot more of the sort of software technology on offer and training providers or training technology people so i think if you went certainly i went for two days and i talked to people non-stop just about training related stuff which is great but yeah it's it's, it's almost a shame it's only every two years and also just they sort of sorted out the administration so it's really easy now yeah generally very very positive apart from the fact that excel just seems to be you know such a large place and such walking and standing and then drinking beer at the end of the day it's, it's no sounds easy horrendous. Yeah, I've just realised our guest this week is an American, and um, maybe Americans listening may not know what DSEI is, but it's the uh, it's the UK's largest defence expo. Would we would we say is that accurate? Yeah, certainly UK's. Yeah. Okay, and it would be remiss of us not to mention our sponsors, Babcock International. Colin, you went to their big launch event. I'm sure that there was a special VIP podium for the Warfighter podcast host as well. As uh, part of this, no, I, I was we I was on the front row, ready to ask questions. But, <laughs> no, uh, the yes, the the sort of keynote speech. I mean, hey, we were on the inside, so we we had a preview. But Matt stood up and gave a presentation. I, I would say he had a panel with the partners on there, and that came across very well. Uh, very very credible people, and you kind of look at yeah, you kind of understand why those people are there. So it's kind of nice that yes, we're sponsored by them, and um, it's also good to see that. It is a very credible team. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be obviously we won't get an insight of this, but it'll be great to see how that solution actually pans out. Cause at the moment it's all good sort of thought leadership, I guess. Yeah. But until you see it, what does that actually mean? But certainly very credible partners. Next few months are gonna be fascinating with the team crucible and the collective training transformation kind of program within the UK. So let's move on to the interview for this week. It was a great, I mean really exciting interviews one of those interviews when you get into the flow and you're absolutely fascinated by the topic 
the topic in itself we're covering is artificial intelligence, but kind of evolving from our chat from last season. So last season, we spoke to Chris Covert from Microsoft, and we covered kind of demystifying the term AI in some detail. So that's episode four, and the link of that will be in the show notes. Now we're working with Rob Alberton, the VP of AI Innovation at Octo, and a veteran to boot. And we are looking to dig into a specific area. So this time it's going to be the generative AI. Of course, that was a, a big movement towards the end of season one. Very interesting for us to explore what's happened now. The dust has had a chance to settle and ways in which defense may or may not be using it going forward. I think AI is the gift that keeps giving. Um, <laughs> as we said in the first ep- you know, the episode four, there are many aspects to it, many rabbit holes to explore. So this one is definitely going down one of the very popular rabbit holes at the moment, which is generative AI. And I suspect it won't be the last reference to it, whether you love it or hate it. Gotta love it, surely. <laughs> Without further ado, here is Rob, a super nice guy and extremely knowledgeable to boot. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you today. So for those that may not have come across you, Rob, could you please introduce yourself, give us a bit about your background and how you find yourself to be the VP of AI Innovation at Octo? Yeah, I'm Rob Albritton, Vice President of Olabs and Innovation at Octo. We're a company of about 1,600 people based out of Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C. We have an organization within Octo called Olabs. That's our rapid prototyping and innovation arm. Think of it as the technology special forces of Octo. Um, and I was blessed to be recruited by Mehul Sangani and Sujay Edward, who are a couple of our C-suite guys at Octo about four and a half years ago. Spent some time at MITRE, NVIDIA, Active Duty Air Force, and uh, Army Erdic, the Engineer Research and Development Center out of Fort Belvoir, Virginia, before I landed here. So it's been a circuitous route, definitely not uh, linear to get here, but here we are. Yeah, and I know from the conversations we've had offline that you, you, there's a whole suite of products that all research you're doing that is fascinating, would be fascinating to our listeners. However, we've chosen to zero in on the AI side of life. Listeners of the podcast will know that in season one, we really, AI and, and generative AI was really starting to come to the fore. And unsurprisingly, over the last few, you know, few months, we've started to see these AI companies or, or defense companies now switching fire onto AI. Connor and I have seen quite a lot of that over the last few weeks at DSEI, which is a big event in the UK. So what do you make of this? Is it a fad? Is it a craze? Has the dust settled? What's your kind of reflection or experience on that? Yeah, just to give you a kind of a salient example uh, of what's going on about I want to say three years ago, um, I'm kind of losing track of when COVID really took hold of the world, but um, COVID shut things down. I think the last soft week or SOFIC Special Operations Forces Industry Conference that we had here in Tampa down near SOCOM headquarters was, I want to say, say 2020 or 2021, the last in-person one. And walking around the floor there, I mean, there were probably a handful, maybe total, out of hundreds Mm -hmm. of companies that had any kind of AI demonstrations. Walking around there in May of this year, three-fourths, I mean, just about everybody had some kind of AI demonstration. So obviously AI is, there's an AI craze, but now it's the generative AI craze and everyone's got a generative AI platform or is leveraging generative AI, right, to generate new content. And sorry, and on that note, what we try and do with this podcast is make sure that everyone can follow the journey and the conversation. Uh, it would be really good if you could give a kind of a layman's, you know, something that I can understand, a term for what is generative AI from your perspective. What does it mean? Yeah, absolutely. 
So if you're talking, I'll call it traditional, but even AI, right? I feel like I feel like it's been around so long. I mean, truly, AI has been around since the '50s, right? The Dartmouth summer when they coined the term AI. Algorithms have been around before that, but really, the last 12 to 15 years is when it took off. AlexNet in 2012, when you know, machine learning model an algorithm was trained to identify images in a or objects in an image better than a human could do. That was the first time, right? So that's when AI took off Mm -hmm. in 2012. Until the generative AI craze kind of took hold, what we were talking about was essentially think of computer vision, right? Training an algorithm to identify images or objects in an image, I should say, uh, the way a human would, right? So Mm -hmm. putting bounding boxes around an aircraft in imagery or a tank, or that algorithm's not generating any new content. That algorithm is simply telling a human there's something there in that image that they're looking for. So it's assisting Mm -hmm. them, right? Generative AI is actually generating new content. So generating an image of an aircraft, generating, you know, summaries of content. So you ingest a bunch of text documents into an algorithm. It can now generate a summary uh, so it's not just doing analysis, it's actually generating net new content. Awesome. That's really helpful, actually. And so, sorry, I, I, I'm conscious that I jumped in there. Did you want to finish off your point about where are we with the the craze or fad or is it here to stay conversation? Yeah, it, it's not a fad. I wouldn't classify it as a fad. I think generative AI is here to stay and it will continue to advance. I do think there is some risks to the over-marketing, I would call it, right? And over-promising. <laughs> I think maybe the wave of a- of generative AI solutions came on a little too fast. And perhaps there are some government entities that are adopting it before they understand it, right? And uh, so I, I do think there are some risks, but I, I would not call it a fad. I think it's here to stay. Conrad, we're talking offline. I think we concur with that. But let's pivot. Obviously, we, everyone probably now has tried things like chat GPT and other AI solutions that are out there. Can we look at your perspective from a defense? How can generative AI, from your perspective, support defense, both in terms of training and and maybe real world operations? So I'll tag on to the the last statement. I think it's not a fad, but at the same time, we have to be careful not to overpromise. And we have to make sure that our customers in in DOD and IC, but especially in the the Department of Defense and, and MOD, understand what they're getting into when they work with generative AI, because it does work a little bit differently than your traditional machine learning and deep neural network based algorithms. So I think we have to be practical. That's an approach we've taken at Octo, for example. We see a lot of companies out there, a lot of our competitors trying to boil the ocean. And frankly, we we see the DOD here in the US doing it too. Uh, When I say trying to boil the ocean, they're trying to apply generative AI to the most complex problems they have first, instead of taking baby steps, right, with this new technology. (laughs) So I'll give you an example, courses of action for a commander. There are companies selling the capability to the government that they can ingest, you know, call it hundreds of different data sources, disparate data sources from the battlefield. They can create a conglomerate or fuse those data sources together, feed them into foundation models or generative AI models, right? And spit out a course of action to the commander. Now, in basic terms, yes, that's technically possible. 
but very unrealistic. I mean, it's such a complex problem that they're trying to solve and so many unpredictable things that happen on the battlefield. That is not the kind of use case we recommend taking on first. We recommend more practical use cases. Yeah, and I've got to say, hearing this this idea that AI is going to start spitting out courses of action makes me kind of shudder and shiver a little bit because there's lots of things as a commander. There's lots of soft realities of war that are super hard to quantify. I'm never saying possible these days, but super hard to quantify. Secondly, the whole point of the orders and estimate process, the estimate process of, of an operation, is to allow the commanders to go through the whole process themselves so that they really acquaint themselves with the operation. At the point where you start spitting out courses of actions to commanders, they haven't they haven't personally then gone through that orders and estimate process. That's just given information that someone else has given them. And I think that's a really you know, dangerous path to be going down. And then, I, then where does it stop? To become a legal thing? Do we, if you don't, if you as an independent commander decide to take a course of action that is not recommended by the generative AI solution, are you now legally culpable for that if the government starts mandating it? And then where does it, where does it fall down? It just sounds like an, uh, excuse the pun, but an absolute minefield. And, you know, maybe in the future there is a solution in there, but I, for one, I'm very much interested in the simpler practical applications now done well to actually solve pain points of day-to-day stuff. I will just jump in here because I spent last week not dedicated to looking at AI, but certainly noticing a lot of people talking about it and demonstrating it. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got some applications that are absolutely trivial and you go, you don't need AI to solve that. <laughs> you know, you're, you're quite capable of making a very quick decision and or, or having a you know, some information presented. That's a silly use application or a sledgehammer to crack a nut. So it's interesting, you, as you rightly say, you've got to find that middle ground and say, this is achievable today. You maybe got your stretch goals, but you ain't going to do that for, you know, maybe you don't even have, even have the data. I do I do see a lot of AI applications that go, I know you don't have the data to train that. So yes, the model may exist, it may be capable, but if you have poor information in, it's not going to learn very well. You're, you're spot on. I completely agree. That's uh, I know this is a little bit off topic, but not not directly on topic of of Gen AI. But what you just described, Colin, is a classic example of of folks not understanding their own problem well enough to know whether AI is the right solution or not. And oftentimes, it's not. That does happen. It could just be a accelerated computing problem, right? It, or you just need to do something faster. And AI is not always the way to do that, right? So at Olabs, we created a multi-step process that we take our government clients through because of that, right? So we help them understand their problem first. We make sure they have the data they need to solve that problem. We make sure they have the computational resources. That's another thing. A lot of customers don't understand that AI doesn't, it doesn't just grow on trees, right? To train a machine learning model or a deep neural network, you've got to have significant computational resources and talent, people that understand how to do that. And if you're not willing to make those investments into those resources, AI is probably not the place you need to go to solve your problems, right? So and we're spoiled, aren't we? Because we, we can log into ChatGPT for free. We can play with uh, MidJourney for eight pounds sorry, $8 a month or something and get a met, you know, stuff that blows your mind, frankly. And you go away, go, I don't know how that works. It, it's probably witchcraft. But you don't <laughs> see the amount of investment and the the hordes of humans teaching the machine that went on. 
it's a bit like when you say, "Well, I'll build, I'll build a net Netflix for X." Right? So people say, "I'll build Netflix for X." This use case. So, do you understand how much investment Netflix took to do? <laughs> like, you can't do that. That's absolutely right. It takes thousands of hours of GPU time and many thousands of GPUs, graphics processing units. Right. So we're talking like massive data centers worth of computational resources to train, you know, foundation models. So if, if you expect to do it in our lifetimes, if you want to do it on a desktop, I suppose you could wait two or three years for your model to train. <laughs> but I don't think we want to do that. So we've kind of unilaterally decided that boiling the ocean, so to speak, option, again, sounds cool. And maybe in the future, there's a place for it. But right now, sounds a bit almost too good to be true. And then we've gone down the, 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 the that was the right of arc, left of arc is, is the, you know, all the simple tasks that actually, you know, your sledgehammer to solve the problem and actually may not be needed. So Rob, I'm really curious to see where your head's at and where Octo's head's at when it comes to AI and where it actually practically fits in going forward. Absolutely. So uh, prepare yourself on the on the edge of your seat. This is really sexy <laughs> stuff that I'm going to talk about. No, it's not. It's the money shot. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, it, but, it's, but it's useful, right? So we noticed, and any of us that have been active duty or spent time around the, the military understands there are a lot of training activities. So everything requires training from your weapon to your UAS platforms, to your other unmanned systems, to, you know, just you name it. Everything takes weeks and weeks of training. We're always, always in a class training. So we figured we could use large language models to reduce the training time to pot potentially zero with things like UAS systems, complex UAS unmanned systems, right? So think drones, uh, military drones, tactical drones that we work with oftentimes come with very complex user manuals. Call it 100 to 300 pages worth of directions on how to do things with that drone. No soldier has time to go through that user manual after they've already been through a, a two or three week training course on that user manual. Now they're out in combat. Now they're out conducting actual operations and they forget how to do something. They've got to open that user manual and search through it or pull up their PDF and do a you know control search and, and look for that part of the document that they're trying to find how to do something with that drone. So we've fed user manuals into our large language models that run on an edge device. So a, a low size weight and power tactical server, basically, that's man portable. Our C2 and C, C5 ISR system all feeds into the same device. So we've got a common operating picture. We've got all of our drone feeds, all of our maps, all of that stuff residing on the same device. Now we add a large language model with our user manuals, and now the soldier can just type into the uh, large language model interface, show me how to do XYZ with drone two, and it comes up with an answer instantly. So no longer do they have to search through those user manuals. You were describing to me the Microsoft animated GIF clip thing that you can ask for help, basically. Don't, no, no, no. Don't, don't do it. Dis, dis, uh, disservice. Yeah, and Mr. No, Paperclip was... No, you could put a Kevlar helmet on it. <laughs> and again, you know, stop me here, Colin, if, I'm, um, if I've am if i given this dip before. But when I was on deployment out in Afghanistan, I was in the ops room and, and my job was obviously you know, current ops, what was happening at the time. And one of the events is obviously the worst case scenario is a downed helicopter. It's a very complicated process of which you don't really rehearse. 
However, it's, it's part of the handover. Here's the 40 million things you need to do if the worst happens. And it is a scary thing to have. And I was, you know, drew my hand over, wrote down, you know, not only did I have the folder, but I also wrote down my own, own notes associated with that event. And if there was something there that, that you could just type into, there's been a down helicopter, enter. Instantly, it's like, right, okay, you need to start thinking about this, this, and this, and this. You, you're probably doing it anyway, but then you've got the chat that you can interact with and use that to query, oh, what's the what's the phone number for Overlord or whatever it is, the, the organization that, that keeps the airspace that you don't maybe you haven't spoken to regularly. So what you know, it might just have all that information to hand without you having to spend the next minute or two minutes digging it out. I, I would have loved to have something like that. That would have given me a lot of confidence. Again, assuming that it's trained properly and assuming it gives you the right information and assuming it doesn't hallucinate, which I think we'll probably go on to later in the conversation. Yeah, spot on. Those are good ones. Um, yeah, like an automated nine line for Kazavak or any of those. Like, I mean, there's just so many use cases on the battlefield. They sound simple, but when you're there, as you have been, you've got so much going on. It, it can be kind of complicated, but I think large language models would be a good way to automate that a lot of those processes. But again, you're not necessarily when you say automating i think i can definitely see it supporting when you say automating like those complicated situations because we did have an event like that and it was super complicated and there were troops everywhere and no one knew where x y and z was and then units that wanted needed to get extra reinforcements to the ground and there's but then as the helicopter was about to take off to go and reinforce the units the unit said oh no we need some more batteries hold the helicopter it, it's not a very easy thing. It's not black and white, never is in, in war. So I could definitely see it supporting and making more efficient and therefore probably hopefully saving lives. But the automation of that process, I still definitely query that slightly. I guess the appropriate term is augmentation, right? That Yeah, yeah I was about, I'm about to jump in. There's, there's some interesting papers on and then the term we use, and if it's the same as human machine teaming. Yep. So how do you accelerate the human to make that choice? Because, and we were having a sort of philosophical discussion if you say decision-making, there is a theory that says actually only humans can make decisions. Algorithms and computers can give you effectively a choice structure, a logic flow, and actually make a decision. They just, If you give them the same set of input variables, they'll give you the same answer. But the human makes that judgment, and that's the interesting balance is to pick Tom, right? And I've got another example where I had to write signals, so I know what it's like. And it's like, I tried to write uh, an Excel spreadsheet to write the signal for me. And it kind of, 70% of the time, it worked all the time. <laughs> and the other 30% was like, no, no, I have to do it. So in that instance, like Tom's, it could provide a lot of the, hey, look at these top five things. But Tom's still very much making the call and working out what to do next and maybe prioritizing, reprioritizing what computer thinks. I'm conscious that that was kind of one really clear example of how you're using it. Are there any other examples you can give us? Yeah. So uh, another one with the UAS platforms, unmanned systems, is integration of them and integrating different drone systems into your common operating picture instead of having to do it manually, right? Being able to automate, or I should say augment, uh, (laughs) augment that process. So that's, uh, it can be very complex and manually intensive process to click, drag, set up, you know, your, your UDP or your, uh, multicast and put your drone on the right network and all of those kind of things that a lot of that can actually be automated as well. So, so that's using sort of ground control station as provided by the OEM, but you provide sort of like an orchestration orchestration interface and that does a lot of that and then just because, you know, are you sure? <laughs> Almost. 
Do, is this okay? Is that, is that what you're doing? Yeah, that's right. That's an orchestration. So the we're like the puppet master that controls all the sensors out there on the battlefield. That puppet they're... master sounds worse. Yeah. That that sounds that if you want to scare people, then oh, I won that job though. Can I can I apply for that job? <laughs> what puppet master? Well, we're trying to eliminate that job. We're trying to make it as uh, yeah, yeah. as as automated as possible, or as user friendly, I should say. And then if you think about all, I guess I don't maybe an MOD. Or, uh, they call it the same thing. We call it Internet of Battlefield Things, right? IOBT. You're putting so many sensors and automated systems on the battlefield today, the systems that can collect information and generate information. We don't have good ways. We're, st- we're getting better, right? With companies like us developing CX Edge, our sensor integration and data management platform. Uh, we're getting better at collecting all that information and not just leaving it behind, dumping it after a combat mission, for example, or not saving it at all. There's so many nuggets of information out there, but then what do you do with it? How do you sift through it? Those kind of th- those kind of questions. Making data discoverable—that's another really salient use case for LLMs, right? Creating better search capabilities, being able to search rapidly, search through very large not only large, but disparate data sets. You've got imagery, signals, radar, just to think of a different domain, uh, a data domain, data type, it's out there on the battlefield. So uh, sifting through that's a very manual process today. We're using LLMs to make that search process easier and quicker. And when you're applying these, I may be leading the question here, but I guess is a lot of the work in preparing that data or just even working out where it is and the engineering and then the, you know a bit of sort of preparing it before you even get to the point of deploying the LLM I mean you know is it 50 50 is it 60 40 what's the sort of no. weighting of effort no it's more like uh, 90 10 90 oh, okay 90, so, so 90% a bit like cooking it's all in the prep and the final <laughs> the final bit putting it together so it's like 90% of engineering effort in getting it ready and then the final bit you know you almost don't see anything until 90% through it that's right yeah uh, so the statistic is somewhere around 90% of machine learning models do not make it into production so to say that another way only 10% of the machine learning models being trained today by DoD actually make it in into a warfighter's hands or actually make it to a place where they can be used operationally. So what's going wrong? Is it expectation management? You know, the user expects more than this thing can do, picking the wrong model, not enough data, or is it oh, what's, why, are, why are we failing at 90% of this at the moment? Yeah, sorry sorry to jump in there. Uh, but yeah, all of the above. Absolutely. All of the above. There's so many different reasons for models not performing the way we think they will. Another one is just we'll train them sometimes. We deploy them into operations, and the real world is not the same as the world you train the model in. And so the model immediately starts to drift or degrade for other reasons, and they don't perform. And so the users say, I'm not using this thing. It's not working. Then they become jaded, and they don't want to use the ML models. And so it's just kind of this cycle. It's become quite easy to train models. Uh, now, it does still require the computational resources and all of the things we discussed earlier, but it's become easier. There are a lot of auto ML tools out there that automate the model training process. There are ETL tools and data prep tools and things like that today, labeling tools 
to help you prep your data, but actually putting it into production is the hard part. In addition to the the actual model itself, the issues with models themselves, you've also got all of the comms issues and the linkages between where the data comes off the battlefield and how do you get it back into your ML ops platform to monitor the model's performance in real time and then retrain the model if you need to. It's a very complex process and problem that we've been trying to solve for four years at OLabs. So clearly organizations like yours, it's not so much the ability to do it, but also the ability to advise early on in the project, say either this is not achievable or it's high risk. Have you thought about using it in a different way where it's more of a blended solution? You know, the whole process doesn't rely on AI from end to end, but you augment bits of it. And you know that's a higher degree of success. And later on, you can build on that. I was thinking about one of our guys, one of our machine learning engineers. I won't say his name, but when he listens to this, he'll know who he is. And we can laugh at this now, but right, came out of, college, out of school, straight into the defense industry. But where he worked previous to Olabs, they didn't really put him into situations where he had to do anything other than create machine learning models. He's a machine learning engineer. I'm just going to create machine learning models. That's it. Algorithms. So we bring him over to Olabs, and he immediately has to go down to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, to work with Marines and uh, special operators down at MARSOC. And uh, they throw him into a situation where he not only has to deploy the model into a, a, an environment that he wasn't used to being in, but also deploy it onto their legacy hardware, use their network connectivity. So he had to learn to be a, a comms guy as well. So all of a sudden, he has to do it all. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. It, it's far more complex than just training a machine learning model. And then here you go, soldier or Marine, go use it. There are so many moving pieces to these warfighting systems and these IT networks and things that the, the military uses. At least our machine learning engineers, they kind of have to be do-it-all engineers. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. I just had one reflection when I was listening to you and Colin chat, and then I want to move on to kind of the dangers associated with generative AI, if you if you don't mind. Uh, we are definitely starting to come towards the end of this conversation, and we've got plenty more points to try and cover. So we probably won't get everything done, but that's nice because it means we can always come back and get you invite you on uh, again as another guest. So my reflection was just thinking about the use cases you've been talking about, we've been talking about, where we think it really can add value to defense, but how hard that little slither of the opportunity is to sell because you've got the blue sky thinking use of generative AI where it's it's not taking over anyone's job specifically and you can you know you can get the big figures you get lots of money you can get generals really excited by it they're going to change the world and you have to prove anything for a really long period of time so that, that I can see how easy how it could be easy to get money for those kind of projects for the kind of projects you're talking about the problem is that it's it's already being done there are processes in place to do those job roles and it's, it's a lot harder, and I've been in, in it myself when, when, when talking about trying to change the way we're training with virtual reality, to try and change the way an organization functions as they are already functioning because they're, well, we're already doing it. So what's the problem? Why do we need to invest money on it when we haven't fallen over? It hasn't broken already. So uh, I do feel your pain when we're trying to convince organizations to invest in a good uh, logical use of this technology for a solution. You know, clearly you're a glass half full chap. And, and I'd see it as a glass half, half sorry, glass half empty. I'd see it as a glass yeah. half full problem because gap posts, I mean, that's way up high up in the, the list of problems that our military have, whether that's gap for two months or for two years. And I think 
this is where you can leverage the human component to deliver either the same or more because you don't have that body. So the, yes, I agree with you, Tom, that the processes are there, but how can we help the process that it doesn't need all the, the people, which we don't have? I mean, I'm sold. I was just synthesizing, <laughs> empathizing with Rob there with his with his play going forward. Right, now let's go down uh, the rabbit hole of the dangers, threats. Everyone gets followed a shiny thing, and, and I'm very excited by it. I use it on a daily basis, generative AI, one form or another. But for defense specifically, what are your views on the threats and dangers associated with that technology? Yeah, so uh, I'm sure you guys uh, saw the Stanford paper that came out, what was it, maybe six weeks ago now? Uh, right after ChatGPT, not long after uh, ChatGPT was released to the public, but they researched uh, basically drift, right? So model drift in ChatGPT in the in the large language model. There were certain tasks that the model went from something like 90 plus percent precision down to three, or I think it was like 2.7, something like that, right? So over time, we still don't really understand how these models perform over time. We are really good at computer vision at Octo and Olabs. We know computer vision models drift over time. So models that are trained to identify objects in video, for example, concept drift, uh, for example, we, we know that the world is not exactly the same as it is when we train the model, when we actually put it into production. And so we experienced drift and we created a tool to monitor models for drift and then retrain them and retrain them iteratively. I think that's a risk with large language models, perhaps even more of a risk because the models are so big and they have so many parameters, they're harder to monitor. So we have some research we have to do there. And then another one we're really cognizant of at, at Olabs is deception and being able to deceive models. So we see it again with computer vision. Models are quite easy to deceive. We've all seen the example of the stop sign. Somebody puts a sticker on it, right? And the Tesla thinks it's a speed limit sign instead of a stop sign. So it accelerates instead of stopping. We don't really know yet exactly how vulnerable large language models are and generative AI models are to that kind of deception concept as well. So I think that's a risk. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating area. I mean, I'm, uh, for my sins, a trained engineer and I like working with stuff, but I see this as another, you know, transformation where we're, we're moving from being the machinist to the tool setter or the machine setter. And you wouldn't ever put a uh, an automated lathe and where it churns out widgets every day and expect it to be making the same, you know, the widget itself it will drift. It will be slightly bigger. The tool will drift. And this this is the same for these like these models, and and I think a lot of people don't understand that. That's a known problem for a long time. And as I say, we don't actually under, they're so complex, we don't really understand what you have to sort of experiment with these things. We have to discuss some of the existing issues with just you know, are you using the right tool for the right job? So go back to your machinist analogy. I could use a CNC lathe, but actually I don't need that. I need a simpler tool. You know, I just need a file for that. I'd written responsible use of AI. So that's as much as understanding the limitations. And yeah, we're so used to software that always works the same way. And this changes or it doesn't respond to threats. We'll have to keep retraining it like it's forgetful. It is. We do. You do absolutely. <laughs> ML ops, right? Machine learning operations, LLM ops, right? Large language model 
operation. It's a, it is absolutely a circular, right? Iterative process. It doesn't, it never stops. You don't train a machine learning model. You don't train it, treat it like a, a widget, deploy it, and you're done with it. That's not how it works. You've got to continue to care and feed for these things, almost like a biological entity, keep them growing, keep them learning. And then uh, while you were talking, Colin, I was thinking, you know, another issue we run into is uh, when we're talking about government agencies, they shouldn't necessarily rely on models that have been trained on the corpus of internet data, right? Open internet, you know, Reddit, things like that. They need the ability to customize their models. They need the ability to train them on their own data. And then you talk about the intelligence community and, you know, when you start getting into classified scenarios, they've got some unique requirements that I think are going to be potentially more challenging for them to train and, and actually leverage foundation models, generative AI. I did have a point I'm going to resurrect because I kept it for this bit because it's related to the risks. Safety case. So it's okay for humans to make mistakes, but when we look at machines, we almost expect the machine to be without fault. You know, to, it's got to be 99.998%. You know, to the Tesla car, for example, humans crash cars all the time, but oh, one, one autopilot incident and these things are unsafe. It's like, well, it may have avoided 10 crashes that day, but the one time it messed up, it, it went beyond its abilities, then we pick on that. So so almost I see that the AI almost has to be not slightly better, it has to be orders of magnitude better than the human, otherwise we lose faith, which is a weird... I mean, how do you deal with things where you have that safety case to say, well, this cannot make a wrong decision? You know, What's your approach to that? From a philosophical perspective, I actually, I think that's a very, to me, it's a very odd concept that we have to, an algorithm has to be perfect where a human doesn't, right? And I, I always, I go back to like early days, Iraq, where we had imperfect intelligence on weapons of mass destruction. And we made decisions to go in based on that imperfect intelligence. And I was an analyst in the IC. And the reality is the question oftentimes comes up from senior leadership, well, how did you arrive at that answer? And it's like, well, I've been an analyst in this, I've been studying this region for 30 years. That's why, you know, gut instinct a lot of times. Well, why do we trust that? But we can't trust an algorithm that we don't fully understand. Humans can't always explain why they've arrived at an answer, but we trust them, right? And we make world-changing decisions based on those so it's a it's a very odd concept to me that we have to tr that we have to know every single in and out of what's going on inside the algorithm, why it arrived at the answer, and it has to be nearly perfect, right? Um, how we handle that though, we were acquired by IBM last December, so Okta was, and IBM has a long history of we call it explainable AI in DoD, but being able to explain and see what's going on inside of a model um, and how it arrived at an answer. Those kind of things, understanding what biases the, the model may have, what biases are in the data that you train the model with, those kind of things. IBM has a long history of that kind of work. They're very, very good with AI ethics and explainability 360 is one of their model uh, libraries that they have. I think it may be open source now. Um, anybody can download it off of GitHub and use it to analyze their models and, and be able to explain their models or model observe, observe the model, um, those kind of things. So 
we take it seriously. We definitely take it seriously. I just, from a philosophical perspective, it's hard for me to wrap my head around why we have to have perfect models when we don't have perfect humans. Mm, it's like getting in a plane without a pilot. I'm still not sure how comfortable I would be about the, that idea, but I don't know. But I know that planes are pretty much guided by computers the whole way. But right, I think we're coming to the end of the conversation. It's been brilliant. It's been really interesting. We didn't even get to the generative AI and global dynamics discussion around uh, strategic effects of this kind of technology. And that's probably a podcast in itself. So potentially we could we could put that together for, for a follow-on episode. Thank you for your time and efforts, both of you, for, for that and shedding light on loads of points there that I hadn't considered. And that whole drift concept of, of AI was, was completely new to me. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say, Rob, before we finish, leave us with or uh, point us towards where we can find you and get in contact with you? Thanks, guys. Appreciate you guys having me on today. Uh, love what you're doing for the defense industry. This is great. Great conversation. If anybody wants to get in touch with me, please find me on LinkedIn. I think you're going to share that information with the audience. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes and also like the Stanford paper that you mentioned. I'm very keen to get that and uh, do a bit more research into that. Brilliant. Well, that's all for me, Colin. Nothing from me. Great. Well, thank you so much for being our guest, Rob. Thank you. What? an interview for season two um i just i love that we're maintaining that quality of guests and, and really interesting topic or at least i found it interesting and i hope you know the listeners do too the thing that stood out for me other than the fact that rob was obviously really knowledgeable but he you know there are those people that you speak to in this industry who just come across as very authentic very genuine who actually want to do best by defense and it's not always the easiest or the best positioning to be in from a marketing perspective or sales perspective, but these are the solutions that actually are going to provide the warfighter with value. And I really hope that that you know, defense acknowledges that and kind of supports ideas that are maybe not the most sexy, but probably the best application to that technology going forward in the short term. And he fulfilled probably our only criteria is that we speak to people who have done it. He's definitely done it. He knows the pain and the good points of this technology. There was definitely a few moments where it confirmed my suspicions and others were where I, you know, he said something for a guess which bit where it's like, all right, that's, that's very interesting. That, that sort of is totally counter to what a lot of people are trying to do with the technology and really useful because it saves yourself a lot of time if you know some things are harder to do than others and some things are more sort of low hanging fruit. So yeah, I thought that was really useful. Yeah, and the, the concept of drift, again, I mean, it makes sense. I've been using ChatGPT a lot, and it has been kind of like really poor memory, which is surprising, even though I'm using the same chat conversation. Uh, and let you say, I can probably now relate that back to that a little bit more. Now, Colin, what do you think about what he said about the need to constantly monitor and refine and manage and maintain these machine learning algorithms? Because Defense historically likes to buy licenses, perpetual licenses or annual licenses that sit there on computers and get installed once and it's really hard work to continually update and provide new versions. Do you think that might be a showstopper or a challenge for well, the industry? Yeah, I think I think we need to stop looking at these things as miracle devices and actually get under the hood and go, Oh, these are just these are just machines, aren't they? And all machines need to be you know, we don't need to be in the machinist, we need to be in the machine setter, as we said. And we need to understand that these do require maintenance. Maybe it's a slightly different concept, but um, is it interesting? I, I have experienced large language model drift as well, and I've been using them. And if if you go and have lunch and come back to them, they drift off onto a different subject. You've got 
pull them back. Someone said they're a bit like the graduate intern that has great potential, but slightly distracted and you've got to keep on task. So useful, but not superhuman by any means. We'll put some of the useful uh, links that Rob provided into the show notes. And yeah, if, if there's any other areas of AI that you think we should be looking into, do, do send comments into the website. Well, I've really enjoyed this episode. I can't wait for people to listen to it. Now, if you want to support the Warfighter or at least uh, keep up to date with everything, then the best place to go to is LinkedIn, because obviously we're extremely professional. And uh, type in the Warfighter podcast in the search box, click follow, and also there's a newsletter there. Only time that we send out a newsletter is when there's an episode that goes out, so you won't get spammed. At least you can make sure you don't miss a beat. Colin, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom.